Welcome to The Buzz with ACT-IAC, your source for the hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Join us each week to hear insights from government and industry experts, stay informed on the challenges facing the public sector, and gain access to valuable reports and thought leadership. Enjoy. This episode of The Buzz is brought to you by LCG. For over 25 years, LCG has empowered federal agencies to create extraordinary change and remain a step ahead in a digitally dynamic world. LCG strategizes closely with federal agencies like HHS, NIH, and HRSA to select the best technologies to support their mission and vision. Through full-stack application development, managed infrastructure and operations support in the scientific lab and service desk environments, grant services designed to bridge the digital divide between health researchers, grant providers, and vulnerable populations, and cloud transformation with generative AI augmented solutions and DevSecOps for digital government. LCG embraces diversity and inclusiveness, celebrating out-of-the-box thinking, which creates opportunity and drives success for clients and their missions. Learn more at lcginc.com, CMMI and SIO certified. Hi listeners, this is Colin Larson. This week, we're going to explore a clean energy technology that is theoretical, futuristic, and not coming anytime soon. Why would we do that? Well, realism is certainly necessary for solving our current climate problems, but every once in a while, it's nice to dream. So let's dream of a future powered by nuclear fusion. I should start with a disclaimer. Fusion is certainly not right around the corner. It is still very, very far from maturity. The climate change timeline we are operating under necessitates decarbonization before such a time when fusion energy could become a reality. We have plenty of green energy solutions available now, today, that we need to be pursuing. Nonetheless, the technological breakthroughs of the future are supported by the research conducted today, usually by governments who can afford to take the long view, sometimes the century-long view. And it was in a U.S. federal lab last year that an important breakthrough in fusion research was made. In December 2022, scientists at the National Ignition Facility, or NIF, at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory did something that had never happened before on Earth. Controlled nuclear fusion ignition. What's controlled ignition? This will take some explanation. It's, uh, it's quite an impressive facility. So we're working at uh, a facility called the National Ignition Facility, which is the world's most energetic laser. It's about the size of three football fields. That's Alex Zilstra. He was the lead experimentalist during the ignition event last December. And most of that is actually the laser itself. There's 192 beam lines. Um, and then the facility, essentially, you start with a small amount of energy and then amplify the amount of energy in the laser beams um, until they get up to about two megajoules of energy. Uh, and then that's transported into an experimental area where we have a, a small target. Um, it's about a centimeter in total size that's held at the center of a target chamber, vacuum chamber, um, that's about 10 meters across, so pretty big. Uh, and all the lasers are focused on onto that target. Now, our particular approach to fusion what we do is, is we use the laser energy to create 
actually a, a very hot X-ray environment. In terms of temperature, you can think of that as about 3 million degrees Celsius. And those hot X-rays can compress and heat the fusion fuel itself, which is held inside of what we call a capsule. And so that fuel is, is compressed and heated until it's, it's actually hotter and denser um, at higher pressure than at the center of the sun. Um, and those are kind of the extreme conditions that you need for a fusion to occur. So 192 lasers, which are about the length of three football fields, fire at a target the size of a peppercorn. Inside that peppercorn are atoms of deuterium and tritium, which are isotopes or variants of hydrogen, which fuse to make helium. This process also releases energy, lots of it. So the amount that you get out for one fusion reaction um, is about 17 MeV, uh, which is a odd unit of, of measurement that, that we use. But it, you can kind of think of it as being about a million times more than you get from one chemical reaction. Like if you're burning a hydrocarbon like gasoline in your car. But as you might know, fusing two atoms that don't want to fuse together also requires a lot of energy. So the challenge with nuclear fusion isn't that humans haven't been able to produce a fusion reaction. That's been possible for decades now. The problem is that if it takes more energy to fuse two atoms than is released by that reaction, you can't use it for electricity. And that's why NIF's experiment in December was so groundbreaking. And so what's significant now is, is we have energy gains. We put in about two megajoules of laser energy and got about three megajoules of fusion energy out um, for a gain of about 50%. For reference, three megajoules is roughly enough to do a couple loads of laundry. And so that's very significant because it's a proof of principle for the first time you can actually make more fusion energy than you put in to get it started. So this proves that it is indeed physically possible with man-made technology to generate energy through nuclear fusion. But, like I said, this is just the proof of concept. To make electricity, like a nuclear power plant, there are still a lot of engineering challenges to overcome. So in our approach to fusion, which we call inertial fusion, um, it's an intrinsically pulsed approach. So it, it would actually sort of work like a combustion engine in a car where you inject some fuel and the spark plug uh, gets it to start burning. And then it, the, the spark plug you know, starts a reaction that burns through the rest of the fuel. And, and that's essentially what we're doing here. So the laser energy um, is actually kind of inefficient at, at getting to heating the fuel. Um, we put about 1% of the laser energy actually ends up heating the fuel, so about 20 kilojoules, um, or 0 0.02 megajoules. Um, but we're at the point now where the fusion reactions um, in the fuel are starting to become you know, self-sustaining for this, this period of time during the shot. And what I mean by that is the fusion um, reaction produces two particles. One is a neutron that escapes, and, and one is this charged helium nucleus, and that actually can heat the fuel. And so you get the situation where the fuel is heating itself faster than it can lose energy. And that's essentially like a you know, combustion reaction, like a fire um, or uh, in the piston of your car. This self-sustaining reaction that Alex is describing isn't something we can observe on a human timescale. The shot itself is, is very brief in time. So the, the whole experiment is about 10 billionths of a second, 10 nanoseconds. 
And the burn itself occurs over less than a hundred trillionths of a second. Uh, so, you know, the, the pressures, temperatures are very extreme, but it's, it's very small. It's about the width of a human hair and a very brief instant in time that it's actually burning. And this success has to be replicated and improved upon. You know, it turns out that um, one of the key things that enabled this recent breakthrough is uh, the laser team performed some upgrades that allowed them to get more energy out of the laser. But we can only do that um, relatively infrequently. Um, so we're actually still waiting for our first chance to try to, to try to do it again. Then we need to go farther and get even more energy out. Um, you know, we got a gain of about 50%, but that's actually not good enough. We need um, much more energy to, to come out than you put in. And then, you know, once we start to get to that point, there's still a number of, um, you know, daunting technological challenges that need to be overcome to build a power plant. Uh, so right now we have an experimental facility. You know, the, the NIF does one experiment a day or so at the most. Um, a power plant would have to be able to, to do these about 10 times a second. You know, again, you can kind of think of it like a car engine running, um, you know, firing about 10 times a second. Uh, and so we would need to have a laser that can fire that fast at that high of an energy, um, be able to produce the targets um, that quickly and, and so on. Now, wait a minute, I hear you saying. Are we talking about nuclear reactors? How dangerous would a fusion reactor be? Well, to answer that, we have to talk about why fusion is different from fission, which is the process that currently powers all the world's nuclear reactors and bombs. John Edwards is the Inertial Confinement Fusion Program Director at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. I'll let him explain. But if you think about all the reactors in the world today, most of them are fission. Uh, in fact, they're all fission. There's about 450 of them uh, over like 30, 30 odd countries that produce about 10% of the world's electricity. And yep, they generate their, their energy from fission. And so when a neutron interacts, collides with a, a you know, nucleus like uranium-235 in particular, a fissionable nucleus, nucleus produces two smaller nuclei, and the, the mass of those is just a little bit less, fraction of a percent less than the, the parent nucleus. And that's where yeah, um, yeah, Einstein's E equals MC squared comes in, and you generate a huge amount of energy from that. And it's, it's millions of times more than chemical energy. And that's why, so per unit mass, you get a lot more energy out. And that's why it's so interesting for energy production. And you also get from that, for some materials like uranium-235, you get more neutrons that come out. And so those neutrons can go on to cause more fissions and more energy. So it's like, you know, little Jimmy in the playground has got a coal, gives it to three of his friends, and each of them give it to three of their friends, and you suddenly get into this exponential thing, and all of a sudden everybody in the school has got a, got a coal. And that's the same in a chain reaction in uh, in the fission process. And that's key, actually, to uh, generating energy in, in a fusion fission reactor. So the sorts of elements you need for a fission reactor, the atoms you split, are highly radioactive isotopes of uranium and plutonium. Both the fuel itself and the byproducts of this reaction are hazardous, and some of this material will remain radioactive for thousands of years. This waste has to be transported and stored in secure locations, usually deep underground. But it's difficult to guarantee absolute safety in this process. I should point out, though, that coal power plants produce more radioactive waste than nuclear plants, but aren't subject to the same scrutiny and safety regulations. In any case, 
fusion reactors wouldn't suffer from these issues, at least not to the same extent. In fusion, there's no intrinsic waste produced by the fusion reaction itself. Now, there is some produced by the fact that the fusion reaction produces helium, but also neutron. Um, and that neutron can activate or, or make radioactive some of the surrounding structures in the facility. But we have one big advantage with, with fusion, which is that we can pick the materials that you, that you build the facility out of. And so there's actually a very um, active area of research in trying to optimize those materials and, and choose them in a way that you produce uh, radioactive waste that, that's not so hazardous and not so long-lived. Another concern with fission reactors is meltdown, an out-of-control reaction. The fission reaction is, is kind of self-sustaining in the reactor. Um, and you have in a fission reactor kind of on the order of years of fuel in it at any one time. And so you can imagine if you burn that years of fuel very quickly, you know, like in hours or days, that that's a lot of energy released and, and it can be bad. That, that's essentially what a meltdown is. This is what occurred both in Chernobyl in the former Soviet Union in 1986 and in Fukushima, Japan in 2011. The environmental consequences of a meltdown are significant. Though modern nuclear reactors have become much safer over time, there's still a non-zero chance of a nuclear meltdown with a fission plant. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has highlighted the risk armed conflict poses to nuclear power infrastructure, even if accidental meltdowns are unlikely. But for a fusion reactor, such a meltdown would be impossible. To get fission to work, you essentially bring these fissionable materials, you put them close together, and the neutrons will start interacting, you get enough material, and um, you'll get this buildup of a reaction. And it's very simple, right? You don't need to do much to it. In a, in a fusion reactor, uh, you're basically trying to make charged particles come together and fuse together. And in doing that, they're trying to overcome this enormous force, which is trying to push them apart. It's an incredibly strong force. And so the only way that you can do that is you have to give them a lot of energy. And that means you have to make them really hot. So the material really hot. In fact, you've got to get it hotter than the temperatures at the center of the sun to make these things work much hotter than that. And so when you think about the risks involved in that, Whenever you take that heating source away, and in fact, whenever you make this hot plasma, it always wants to cool down. It never wants to stay hot. So any imperfection in the system, any disruption is going to cool it down or it's going to you know, make it uh, the confinement go away. And so there's, there's no, there's, there isn't this chance of this potential runaway reaction. It's a, it's a different type of uh, environment. It, in a scenario where you, there's control, you've lost control, uh, it basically shuts itself off in a fusion system. The final concern with modern nuclear reactor development is a big one. The same fissile material used in a reactor, uranium or plutonium isotopes, is used in nuclear missiles. And even byproducts of nuclear power plants can be built into weapons of mass destruction. This makes them a geopolitical flashpoint. The same technology that would enable a country to generate plentiful carbon-free energy would also enable that country to destroy the planet. But a hypothetical fusion reactor wouldn't contain any of these materials. You don't have special nuclear material in reactors that are going to get that we're going to be designing. And so and that's the key is you know fission reactors they use they use special nuclear materials, they produce special nuclear materials. Um, and there's a lot of energy that comes out of it, so there's good reason for doing that. Uh, you just have to be careful about you know how you regulate and how you deal with these things. 
you know, in the, in the fusion reactors, provided you're not putting any fission material in there, uh, which is, you know, that's not the intent with any of these fusion reactors, you don't have the same considerations. The big concern with things like proliferation is the control of these special nuclear materials. So a fusion reactor could, theoretically, be more easily deployed in less politically stable parts of the world without fear of nuclear weapons materials falling into the wrong hands. So all of this sounds pretty cool, right? Well, the bad news, which I alluded to at the top of the show, is that all of that is still purely hypothetical. Even beyond the engineering challenges in the experimental phase that Alex mentioned earlier, we have to contend with the scaling and commercialization process that would bring fusion reactors online. You know, the, 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 advances, the advances we saw in the National Ignition Facility, I mean, that was a landmark event. That was a tremendous event, basically. So look, with this particular approach, the basic physics of, of doing this can work in the laboratory. Uh, but there are huge steps to get to commercialization, both in terms of making that system more efficient. We've got to make it a lot more efficient, at least 10 times more efficient. We did one experiment. You know, we shoot once a month or whatever. You've got to do that 10 times a second. And, you know, in a more efficient system, so, yeah, a million times a year. So you have to build up all the infrastructure that, that, can, that can do that. We're actually at a stage where you know, private industry is now being brought in. It's to the point where there's been enough demonstration. You know, NIF has achieved ignition, this landmark event. So we're at this place where the, the science and technology is interesting enough that it's actually worthwhile thinking again, okay, let's start, let's start this in earnest. And so private industry are coming in right now. And you know, the goal of this of the Boulder Cadle vision is that actually they start laying out plans for okay, how do we get to this these pilot plants, sort of in the on the decadal kind of time frame or decade and a half or whatever. And so the process there is basically there's a number of different components in the system that the technologies for which have to be advanced, the science has to be advanced, and so essentially you identify what those advances need to be. You try and bring together the, the, the best expertise from private industry and from the public sector. And you create these, there are things which are called cooperative agreements. And so you create these agreements where you can basically partner with one another and you can have multiple, you know, multi, multi-way partnerships and things like that. And you essentially work on building out those technologies. And as you're building out those technologies, of course, at the same time, you understand you, you've got this model of what you want this reactor to be and every single part of the reactor can affect every other single part and so you're trying as you're developing this technology you try to do this balancing act of making everything kind of play together and pushing different requirements back in different directions and so that's essentially you know the processes you develop these things and the regulatory environment you know in, in parallel with that you've got to think about all the regulatory environment and making sure that you're you're dealing with that you've got to think about okay well where are the uh, where are the places you want to site these 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 initial demonstration plants? You want to think about energy justice, how you um, how you bring in the community in, in this, and and actually a very important part of this is a is a is an engagement is a discussion with the community because it's a new energy thing and and you know people have to want it right they have to be feel comfortable with it so there has to be this ongoing dialogue about people's people's concerns and what they want to see out of it and so on. And that needs to happen at the same time. So there are, you know, there are many things that need to kind of march along there in parallel. On that note, 
The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission announced in April that it would be creating a framework for fusion materials licensing. Fittingly for scientists in the nuclear fusion field, Alex and John were both optimistic about the future. Fusion has actually had a lot of progress over the last few decades to, to get us to now. Um, I like to, to compare it to Moore's Law. So Moore's Law for semiconductors is this sort of famous uh, rule of thumb that you, you double the amount of transistors in a chip every uh, two years. That's basically why computers keep getting you know so much faster and faster. And in some of the metrics that we have for fusion, we've actually followed a similar scaling, um, which is really encouraging. And, and now is sort of the point where we've gotten to this threshold. But I think that that also points to the fact that we can keep improving and you know get more and more energy out. Realistically, you know, if and this is going to take a lot of commitment and to secure funding, essentially, over a sustained period of time, quite a long period of time. But if you put all that together, you put private industry together uh, with all of its expertise in you know, understanding what the consumer needs, you know, operations, building things, what you get from the, the public sector, from the subject matter experts, uh, from all the technology, science and technology that's been done. It's not unreasonable to think, you know, we could start to see demonstration or pilot, what we call pilot plants, which would be the step where you bring everything together for the first time to start to figure out, you know, how do you actually make this work in an integrated system that you could start to see that perhaps in, in the 2030s. Yeah, if the science and technology kind of breaks right for you. From that, you would be learning how do you make these systems more efficient? How do you make them commercially viable? Uh, and you can imagine that in you know, if everything breaks right, kind of in the next sort of decade. So, and those are those are extremely ambitious goals, uh, and they're, they're sort of our goal. Actually, our goal at the lab is to try and enable that to partner with private industry, and and try and make that happen. Way way out in the future, I can imagine you know the tech like with any other technology in advance, it'll become I presume it's going to become much cheaper over time. It'll become much more readily available. Uh, yeah, hopefully you can imagine seeing it in you know, all over the all over the planet, essentially making energy for humanity, making situations a lot better. Yeah, certainly certainly providing baseload in places, but also potentially much more locally in smaller smaller situations if you can actually find a way to shrink shrink the footprints. There's also potential for um, space space flight, uh, those sorts of things. You could imagine having reactors that could do that. I don't know if I go quite as far as Mr. Fusion in Back to the Future, but you know there are lots, lots of I think lots of possibilities out there. Well, that'll be one more thing Back to the Future got wrong. Stop, little girl, little girl, stop! Look, I need to bore you. Hoverboard. The Department of Energy, in its press releases, described this as a Wright Brothers moment, and Alex said the same comparing fusion ignition to the 1903 first airplane flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The first passenger commercial aircraft entered service only a decade later, primitive though it was. By the 1930s, we had international carriers. So does that mean that we'll see a commercial fusion reactor in our lifetimes? Maybe. Though it may not be soon enough to help meet our national 2050 net zero goals, we can still imagine a post-carbon future where fusion energy enters the mix, especially in places less suitable for wind, solar, or geothermal energy. In the meantime, the hard work at the National Ignition Facility continues. 
we're all we're, we're all eager to keep working on that. We're not done by any means. This fusion ignition breakthrough reminds us the role that government research plays in scientific advancements. Someday, in the near future, we may power our world with miniature stars, thanks to the decades-long efforts of public sector researchers. You can learn more about nuclear fusion research by checking out the National Ignition Facility's website at lasers.llnl.gov, which is a great URL, by the way. Thanks for listening. And that's a wrap on The Buzz with ACT-IAC. Join us next week for more hot topics and top issues affecting the federal technology market. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on Twitter at ACT-IAC. More information about today's show can be found in the episode notes. For more insights, visit www.actiac.org. Thanks for listening.